electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly Evans today. And here's what's ahead. Timeline turmoil following Fed Chair Jay Powell's pushback on a March cut. The forecast revisions are coming in, including from Goldman Sachs. Their chief U.S. economist is here with the why and the what of what the timeline looks like now. Plus, cut out four from the MAG-7. Your guest says the... Terrific three is the new play, and he'll name the three names he loves. And the earnings barrage rolls on, and why now is a good time to get in on three out of the four stocks who are ready to report. We'll name those names as well. All that ahead across the hour, but we begin with today's markets and Mr. Dominic Chu with the numbers. Dom, how are we looking? All right, so Mr. Brian Sullivan, it's generally a green day, and we are seeing a bounce back from the losses that we saw post-Fed yesterday. If you take a look at the Dow Industrials, up about three quarters of 1%, 275 points, 38,424. The Nasdaq Composite, up 1%, 15,310, 146 points. And the S&P 500, 4888 right now. It's up 42 points, north of three quarters of 1%. And we're tilting towards the highs of the session. We were up roughly 51 points in the S&P at the highs, up about eight points at the lows. So again, generally a positive day. We'll see if that bounce back momentum can continue. One other place we're keeping a close eye on that has downside momentum and to a lot, a huge degree, is in the regional banking sector, specifically in smaller and medium-sized banks, uh, due in part to that New York Commercial Bank, NYCB, massive drop yesterday tied to that surprise loss, a slash in their dividend by 70%. It lost 38% of its value yesterday. It's lost another 4% right now. That's well off session lows at this point, so there's a bit of dip buying, if you will, whether it's fundamentally driven or maybe just short covering, who knows. But a mix of the two there, it's lost roughly 38 to 40% of its value in two days. Western Alliance, though, Valley National, Webster Financial, Zions Bank Corp, amongst some of those bigger, well-known regional bank names that are moving down in sympathy, some concerns about commercial real estate, net interest margins permeating through the industry. Keep an eye on regional banks. And then you mentioned that terrific three, magnificent seven, terrific whatever it is right now at this point. Well, Apple, Amazon, and Meta platforms, of course, are going to be in focus. They're all up today after losing some steam yesterday all through report earnings. And I'm just going to give you this tidbit, Brian, because I know you like the random but interesting stats Mm -hmm. and everything else. Apple right now, the options market is pricing in a plus or minus three and a half percent move. For Amazon and Meta platforms, both for these, you're talking plus or minus six percent. So the options market has shown you a little bit of what traders are expecting right now. Of course, we don't know if it's up or down. Still, keep an eye on those trades. I'll send things back over to you. We like it. You called it a green day. So I guess you're taking the long view. I, <laughs> I see what you did you there. You see what I did there? I did. All right, Dominic Chu, thank you very much. All right, so why don't we start then our coverage with the Federal Reserve? Goldman Sachs adjusting its rates forecast after Fed Chair Powell said an, a March move is unlikely. Basically said it's not happening. Goldman now pushing back the first cut estimate from March to May, although the bank says it still expects five interest rate cuts this year. So let's dig in on all these stories a bit. 
Joining us now is the economist behind that call, David Miracle. He is chief U.S. economist with Goldman Sachs. And of course, CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman as well. Steve, I, I honestly, you know me, never at a loss for words, but I think I am this time. I don't know where to start with you because everybody's focused on rates, and I get that. But with the job market showing some cracks, with commercial real estate maybe in the bank showing some cracks, could the Fed focus also shift a little more toward the other side of their twin obligations, and that is jobs? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good question, uh, Brian. And, and I think it may be starting to, but I think it needs, just like it needs a little more data to be confident to cut rates, it's going to need a little more data of weak job growth in order to make that call. You still have relatively low jobless claims. Um, you still have relatively low, or but it's higher, continuing claims. The ADP signaled somewhat weaker uh, employment growth, as did, as did the ISM this morning. I think if there's a couple months of um, uh, of weaker job growth, the Fed may increasingly put its focus there. It could speed up the timetable a bit, but I think the d- data has to be pretty bad for that to happen. Yeah, and David, do you expect we will get that kind of, to Steve's point, quote-unquote, bad data and see that shift focus from inflation to maximizing employment? Not in the near term. I think for now, Chair Powell indicated that there's a pretty high bar for the inflation data to give them the confidence that they want in order to cut by the March meeting. So we push back our base case forecast from March to May. More broadly, though, I think you're right that any sign of something going wrong or something looking concerning uh, could get them to cut a little bit more quickly. That's why we kept five cuts in the forecast for this year. I think there are a lot of scenarios that when you're starting off with a funds rate at five and three eighths uh, and inflation has been trending reasonably close to two, the labor market looks rebalanced. uh, A lot of scenarios could get you to say, we don't need to be this high. We can cut a little bit more quickly. Could be a growth scare. Uh, could be labor market data looking a little bit more mixed. I think on average, the labor market data uh, are strong, basically comparable to where we were pre-pandemic. That's the perfect place to be. Uh, But there have been some conflicting signals. Could be inflation slowing too much for their liking as well. Inflation showing slowing too much. I I guess you get my point, Steve, because we've been so like laser and hyper-focused on inflation for the last three years with, by the way, good reason. It looks like the inflation fight may have been won, looking that way, certainly for the data. Whether we get a big turn back up, we'll wait and see. And I just wonder, seeing what we're seeing at a UPS, 12,000 layoffs, a lot of tech stuff coming, the cracks in commercial real estate and <clears throat> banks, you know the Fed very well. You know them personally. Do, they, do you think they're going to have to start to talk about the other things that we really just, because jobs have been strong for three years? Well, you know what they say, Brian, it's all good things in all good time. We've had a really good and strong run of, of, of jobs. Um, it's not entirely clear that we are at balance. I would be watching the wage data most specifically. I'm not really sure that uh, you can be too strong when it comes to the number of jobs. It's the inflationary pressure from the job market that would concern uh, Powell and company over there. Um, And on the downside, um, I think that you could have a period of time where you had either 100,000 or even below that, and that wouldn't be seen as abnormal. Remember, Brian, the unemployment rate is just 3.7%. As David says, a couple quick uh, 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 
higher numbers, if that happened, would get the Fed's attention. But again, they're they're saying the risks are more balanced, but they're not quite saying that the risks are balanced. So they're not where you are, Brian, right now in terms of their abiding concern about the job market yet. David, do you have any concern that inflation could reflare? I mean, we've had this before in history, right? In the late 70s, early 80s, there's been times where you think inflation's killed. Then it kind of rear in the 70s, rears its ugly head again. Is there any chance, anything in your models that suggests that inflation could come back? I think in order for that to happen in a big way, you would need some large external shock that none of us are going to guess today. Inflation expectations are back to a level that's compatible with 2%. The labor market has been rebalanced from an initial state of overheating back to conditions comparable to where we were pre-pandemic when we had, if anything, a low rather than a high inflation problem. So this starting point, I think, is a very healthy one. A moderate increase in oil prices, uh, a little bit of a further dip in the unemployment rate, that's not going to get you into serious trouble. Uh, You need some big shock coming along. So I think uh, the inflation fight is basically won at this point. We have re-anchored inflation expectations. We have rebalanced the labor market. David, just quickly back to you, you said the shock. Could could this, the Red Sea stuff, the shipping stuff, Slightly higher oil off that. Could that be is that a shock or would that not be big enough to create the kind of shock with no all that you're talking about? I think it's not large enough. The magnitude of the impact of these things, you know, we've seen plenty of big fluctuations in oil prices in the 20 years before the pandemic. Sure. It matters a little bit for core inflation, for near-term inflation expectations, but it has never created anything like the seriousness of the problem yep. that we had in 2021, 2022. So the Red Sea shipping, you know, probably a bigger deal mm-hmm. for Europe than for us in the U.S., but just not large in effect. Steve? Yeah, Brian, I want to just bring your attention to the idea that what has happened with the Fed funds rate is that they have dialed out or increasingly dialed out the March probability. What they haven't dialed out is what David is talking about, is the number of cuts that happen or the amount of cutting that happens this year. They're still at, I'm going to give you a fresh quote here, 385 for the year-end funds contract. So what's happening, as you see on your screen now, Brian, is an increasing bet that there could be potential 50 basis point cuts coming as the, as the market says, you know what? I think you're going to the same place. You're just going to have to get there faster. So I'm bringing this up for two reasons. One, to point out the idea that there are these 50 probabilities in there. But in part, there looks to be some bid on some of these issues here that you and David are talking about, that maybe there is a skip in the data, some kind of event that causes or, or the Fed may need to move faster to catch up. It's, it's a, if you look at the uh, mm-hmm. uh, June contract, it's actually 50-50 between 25 and a 50 basis point cut. Wow. Been three years of inflation. Now we're talking about rate cuts. Nothing is nothing is certain but change. Steve Leisman, David Merkel, thank you very much. All right. And since the Federal Reserve seems to be the driver of the stock market these days, let's focus in on it and your money, because even though Bank of America's equity sentiment index ticked down a bit recently, your next guess remains bullish on one trade in particular. She calls small caps tomorrow's winners, and she has four names she likes for the long term. Joining us now is Nancy Prail. She is the co-CEO and senior fund manager for Essex Investment Management. Nancy, I love it. We've been talking about this broadening out 
of the stock market for three years. It hasn't happened. We saw a little bit of it at the end of last year. What makes you optimistic on small caps writ large? Well, and you're right, it hasn't happened. And we thought we saw the beginning of it in the fourth quarter. January obviously was disappointing from the viewpoint of the small cap benchmarks. But what we are seeing underneath the surface is, in fact, some broadening of the market. And even last year, in a very challenging year for small caps overall, there were certain segments of the small cap market that did very well. Um, We know that tech did well. But beyond tech, we also saw excellent performance in the small cap benchmarks from the industrials area. What gives us confidence is that the economic drivers today are the factors that are most favorable for small cap stocks, namely the reshoring of manufacturing and the spending on infrastructure and the electrification of the grid, our world, everything else, combined with very attractive valuations in the small cap space. And perhaps most excitingly for us is the relative positioning of small cap, both in investors' portfolios and also in the market at large. One of the statistics we particularly like is that today, the entire Russell 2000, the small cap stocks, are less than 4% of the entire equity market. That is the lowest number that we've seen in decades. And it compares to an average weight of 6 to 7% and a weight in the 80s, since we've been talking about the 70s and some of the parallels there, a weight in the 80s and the 90s of between 10 and 13%. That's a lot of room for improvement as these names come back into favor. All right, let's go through a few names. I'm not sure we'll get to all four because the long-winded anchor, but here we go, Nancy. Uh, I like Invent, and it's the letter NV, so ticker is NVT, electrified world, kind of the EV. You're not worried about the slowdown that we're seeing kind of in the EV space, that the electrification trend obviously you believe will still continue. Well, the biggest driver for the electrification trend um, is not actually EVs. It is generative AI. When Mm. we look at the build out of data centers that we are seeing and that we think we will continue to see, that requires a tremendous amount of power to drive that. In addition, we know that we've recently seen the launch of Bitcoin ETFs. If you are bull on Bitcoin, that also requires data centers. NVENT is a player in those data centers, and they're really focused on both the uh, bricks and mortar, if you will, of enclosures and and metal boxes to hold the the data, um, to, to hold the servers, but also on thermal management, which is increasingly important, particularly in these big data centers. You're exactly, so we think that they have great growth. I'll say the amount of energy that we're going to need, yeah. the electrification, we're going we're to need hamsters, in, in a billion hamsters and a billion wheels generating power. I'm going to skip two more. Patrick Industries, P-A-T-K, <laughs> building products for marine, power sports, RVs. That would seem to be a little bit risky if there is a consumer slowdown. Well, it is in that sense. However, what we like about Patrick, but there are a couple things we like about Patrick. One is it is an incredibly well-run company with a very, very strong management team. The reason we like it now, and it's been a strong stock, it's not that it's completely undiscovered, but we are at the end of an inventory cycle on the RV side. We think we're near the end on the marine side, and they've just entered the power sports industry. These are inventories, not Patrick's industries, but industry um, inventories of the RVs and the boats, et cetera. 
We're seeing sequential improvement in sales and sell-through. And Patrick has distinguished himself through other cycles by continuing to gain dollars um, of content within their core customer markets. As I mentioned, power sports is a relatively new area for them, mm -hmm. $2 billion TAM additional. So we think they can execute well, even in a somewhat challenging environment. Nancy Pryle, we appreciate the views. The other two names, I'll just say them, Docebo and Digi International. Love the picks. Some new names. Nancy, thank you. Thank you. All right, we are just getting going. Got a lot more to do on deck. Nearly $5 trillion worth of market cap set to report earnings after the bell today. And that is just Apple and Amazon. The numbers and the narratives to know ahead of that. Plus, with all the layoff announcement lately, will tomorrow's job numbers be another sign of some growing weakness or not? We'll talk about it where the opportunities may be for workers. The Exchange, back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. We've got more mega cap tech earnings on deck, and we, of course, have full team coverage covering every, I mean, every angle for you. Steve Kovac is in Cupertino, California, outside of Apple's HQ. Kate Rooney has a look at what to expect from Amazon and Clockwise Capital Partner and Portfolio Manager James Chuckmuck is here with the trade and why he is throwing out more than half the MAG-7 and sticking with just three big names. It's going to be a big block, so let's start with, I guess, Steve, formerly the biggest market cap company in the world, and that is Apple. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it's a pretty dreary day here, but analysts expecting a not so dreary report in the sense of re Apple returning to that top line sales growth for the first time after a full fiscal year, that's four quarters in a row, of declining sales. Now, comps are a little bit wonky. There's a, a week shorter than before, uh, the quarter ago last year and all that. But overall, analysts expecting about $118 billion in revenue. That would be about half a percent sales growth for those keeping score at home. Uh, but of course, there are so many headwinds and other questions throughout the rest of the year, Brian, one being China and this renewed competition Apple is facing now with Huawei, the uh, Chinese smartphone brand that was out of the smartphone game for a couple years there. Now they're back and we've been seeing some initial data uh, coming out over the last few months saying, you know, Huawei is actually taking share away from Apple. And that is why, Brian, guidance is going to be super important. We also got some uh, reports earlier this week from analyst Ming-Ching Kuo, a top supply chain analyst, uh, when it comes to Apple, saying Apple is planning to ship 
15% fewer iPhones uh, this year throughout 2024 than they did a year ago. So listen to the call, Brian. That is going to be super important when we get that March quarter guidance from CFO Luca Maestri. What does the rest of the year, what does the spring quarter look like? And what does the rest of the year look like? I'll also note we're on the eve of the Vision Pro launch. This is Apple's first major new product in nine years. That was 2015 when we got the Apple Watch. Vision Pro going on sale tomorrow. So I'm expecting to hear uh, Tim Cook, who, by the way, graced the uh, cover of Vanity Fair today. First time we've seen him wearing and Vision Pro in in, uh, in person or photographed like that. There you go. You see him right there. Uh, so expecting some color uh, about the Vision Pro launch as well, Brian. Well, I'm excited because tonight on Last Call, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, tune in. We're going to actually have the Vision Pro on set. I'm going to throw one on and literally be on oh, TV live. It's going to be like real reality, augmented reality, all at the same time. My mind is already blown. Is it still, though, Steve, with the Apple all about the iPhone? Does, does iCloud matter? Because I don't know about you, my man, but I know this. I'm paying Apple a boatload of money every month for storage, apps, services, subscriptions, et cetera. You are Apple's favorite kind of customer, and that's the uh, the services business right there, which has, in the last couple quarters, showed some renewed uh, growth, double-digit percentage growth again. There was a kind of lull coming out of the pandemic as people were spending less on apps and services. Uh, but that's kind of resurging again, Brian, to your point. All those subscriptions that you take, uh, that you subscribe to through the App Store, Apple gets a slice of every one of those subscriptions. Um, and so we often hear Apple say, you know, we have this many uh, millions of, or hundreds of millions, rather, of subscriptions through the App Store. All of that is a sign uh, that they're taking a cut from it. So, yes, services will be another big number. And iPhone, of course, the biggest part of the business, expected to grow a little bit, um, especially because a year ago there were so many production problems in China due to COVID shutdowns. Uh, so there will be a little bit of easier comps and some growth shown there, most likely, for the iPhone, Brian. All right, Steve, long day ahead. We'll look forward to it. Probably see you tonight as well. Steve, thank you very much. All right, Amazon, meantime, is not all about e-commerce anymore. One big thing that investors are watching now is, of course, Amazon Web Services. Kate Rooney here now with more on what to expect from Amazon. Kate. Hey, Brian. Yeah, investors are watching Amazon Web Services, AWS, because it's really become the company's profit engine. Expectations for AWS are now high after both Microsoft and yet Google reporting strong cloud growth on their cloud competitors. It's all about that revenue growth rate. So AWS has been lingering at around 12% the past two quarters. You can see that on the right side there. A little over a year ago, though, it was up in the 30% range, 33% back in 2022 there. 13%, that is the number to beat today, Brian. Piper Sandler calls it the bogey and says that will determine the outcome for the stock today. Also watch spending. So Google and Microsoft reported this week both called out CapEx increases thanks to AI. They called it notable and material in both cases. Expect some commentary on where Amazon stands in that AI race and how they're going to monetize it. And then there's that core e-commerce business. Still key investors are expecting some margin improvement over there, especially in its North American retail business. They are looking for upside on the advertising business as well for Amazon. It's launching ads in Prime Video. Investors are looking for some cost savings after going through Multiple rounds of layoffs, as Jeffries put it, they are now in harvest mode as they continue to optimize the cost structure. Amazon's investment in EV maker Rivian could be a drag on net income, so watch that. Uh, Rivian shares are down more than 30% this year. Brian. 
All right, so yeah, Amazon Web Services, you've got the stake in Rivian, but I got to imagine that e-commerce still matters. I mean, how many boxes yeah. of LaCroix water or toilet paper, whatever, <laughs> they're, sh they're shipping out, right? Because everybody you know probably has a cardboard box on their step. 100%. Prime is, is really key here. It's that flywheel effect. They've raised prices when it comes to Prime, and they talked about that this week even, getting that timing from where a box is in a warehouse to your front door is key. They're making that faster. And part of that is regionalization. So moving the warehouses closer to where people are using AI in some cases to kind of anticipate, you know, if you're in Arizona, you might need sunscreen. If you're here in the Bay Area, you know, maybe not. So they, they are using AI to kind of anticipate customer needs. E-commerce is still big, but not as high margin as AWS. And that's why Investors really watch that side of the business. It's become the profit engine, but e-commerce on the revenue top line, still much bigger, but just not as profitable. Kate Rooney also have a just bizarre premonition. We'll see you again later today. Kate, thank you very much. We will. See you at seven. All right. Yeah, exactly. Or four, your time. All right. Your next guest says, forget the magnificent seven. It's more like the mag three or terrific three, focusing more on Meta, Amazon, and Microsoft. And he says it's time to hedge on tech the sector could be due for a fullback, huh? Joining us now is Clockwise Capital Partner and Portfolio Manager, James Chuckmuck. James, good to see you again. I notice that in your terrific three, we got to come up with a new name, of course, you know, Super Six, Terrific Three, whatever it is. Apple sure. was not on the list. Yeah, essentially the way we think about the names that we want to lean into and truly overweight uh, is based on how predictable is the revenue picture and the earnings outlook. And on top of that, how much optionality is priced in or not priced into these, these stocks. And we think among the seven, only Amazon, uh, Meta, and Microsoft uh, have that predictability as well as optionality. And the other ones, you know, we have question marks on, like as Steve was reporting, you know, what, what happens with Apple shipments, iPhone shipments uh, this year, Tesla kind of throwing their hands up in the air on um, uh, on unit sales for the year. So there's more questions than answers on the four. So we're leaning into the into those three. Yeah. And you heard Steve talking about Apple and I'm not picking on him again. I, I, you know, everyone loves their iPhone. What I'm saying is that it feels like Apple is, is a phone company. They've got augmented reality. It's going to be cool, but that's got to be a niche product. Of course, the MacBook, they're great. But you buy one, it lasts hopefully five <laughs> to seven years. And the, the iCloud services business. In your view, what is the proper way to value Apple? Just pure phone sales? I mean, we do look at it on some of the parts basis, but ultimately I think that investors will just predominantly value this on a PE basis. Um, you know, some of the parts doesn't always add up to, to how uh, investors um, analyze and, and value these companies. So on an earnings basis, you know, we think around 30 times is the right number. I think the real question is what happens to revenue. Now, we do think that MacBook sales will accelerate uh, this quarter and potentially come in ahead of expectations. I think the big question mark is on um, on the iPhone, whereas, um, you know, uh, we already know that services is going to be up double digits. So I think as long as iPhone does well, I think it'll continue to grind higher. Um, but it's not yeah. one that we're going to make a very, top weight in the portfolio. Very confused by Meta, you know, the former Facebook, because yeah. it got destroyed two years ago, year and a half ago. The stock, stock tanked. It has now made up all of what it lost and more. How can a company like that, with has products, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, they've been around forever, fall that much 
and then recover that much. What happened? Well, it was really just Apple changing its privacy standards. That was it. Um, That that was it. That little button we get, we log on to a new app. It says, ask app not to track. That was it? Essentially, yeah. But it was on by default for Apple services. Um, But you had to toggle it on by um, manually for non-Apple services. So what... Uh, what's interesting about it is, yes, that was a really tough year for uh, for Meta, but they actually came out of that stronger and more defensible. Um, and the the changes that they made and the improvements that they made uh, in the on the targeting side actually made their products stronger and ultimately yielding uh, higher ROI conversions for for advertisers. So we think Meta's in a in great shape. I think the big question mark we have now it is a top weight also, but the question mark we have is. You know, is the is the religion on the expense side sustainable or not? Obviously, we're going to get color on that tonight, um, but that may change the calculus. If it's sustainable, uh, we think that at 25 times earnings, at tw- uh, with 20 bucks in earnings forecasted, you know, this could be a $500 stock. Wow, 500! It's 395 right now. If you're listening on the radio, so maybe another hundred in upside. James Chuckmuck, James, good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, coming up, the Renaissance IPO ETF coming off its worst month since August. Is there an IPO pipeline problem, and is it helping the best companies stay private maybe forever? We'll talk about what it means for venture capital and investors like you coming up. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your news update. President Biden issued an executive order today targeting four Israeli settlers in the West Bank after recent violence, including the fatal shooting of a 17-year-old American there last month. According to a senior administration official, the order targets settlers who have committed violence, destroyed property, and repeatedly intimidated Palestinian communities. In a statement from Secretary of State Blinken, he wrote that Israel must do more to stop violence against civilians in the West Bank. The Oregon Supreme Court ruled today that 10 Republican state senators can't run for re-election. The lawmakers staged a six-week walkout last year to stall bills on abortion, transgender health care, and gun rights. The ruling upholds the Secretary of State's decision to disqualify them under a voter-approved measure that aims to end such walkouts. And the iconic Fountain of Lions in Rome vandalized today by activists protesting the treatment of circus animals. They threw red, uh, yellow, and orange paint over the four lion sculptures surrounding the fountain. Uh, The protest came months after a lion escaped from a circus near Rome, sparking panic in a seaside town before it was caught. And there you see the fallout. Back to you. Yep. Mona Lisa the other day, the the lion in Rome today. Tyler Matheson, thank you. Thank you. All right, on deck. Are all the layoffs lately just because it is the start of a new year? or maybe the first sign of a real slowdown. That is next.
All right, welcome back to The Exchange. There are some growing signs of a slowdown in jobs. Jobless claims last week, up. Private payroll growth dropped last month. UPS just said it's laying off 12,000 people. And of course, there have been tens of thousands of job cuts in technology lately. All of this coming ahead of tomorrow's jobs number. So let's talk about trends in jobs and hiring and bring in Recruiter.com chairman Evan Soam. Evan, good to have you back on the program. I referenced in the tease going to break, is it merely because the calendar? What I mean by that is we often tend to see a lot of layoffs at the beginning of a year. Companies can then sort of adjust their books on the earlier side. Do you view this more as a January-specific trend that'll, that'll slow down, or are we... Could we expect a growth in more layoffs the remainder of the year? Uh, first of all, Brian, good, good to see you, and thanks for having me on. Um, it's a very complex job market. Uh, I think the layoffs in tech, uh, like a company like Salesforce that announces that they're laying off 700 people, are still hiring 1,000 other people. Um, so there's clearly a changing of their overall staffing in the IT space. Um, but healthcare uh, still still is strong. You know, healthcare, healthcare is still in our top three areas that the recruiters are recruiting for, followed by IT and sales. Nice to see that sales is up there. I think there's still this notion of if I need to come up with really good earnings, uh, the fastest way to do that was really to was really to lay off staff and to uh, reduce my overall operating expenses. I think we're going to see uh, that growth in sales. Uh, really nice to see that uh, because once I'm done making cut, uh, cost-cutting measures, the next is really to grow my revenues. And how do I do that but through sales? Yeah, and I think you nailed it on on the job market because not only is it just matching talent with companies, which is what you guys do and do very well, but also, are you willing to work from home? Are you willing to go into an office? Will you go into an office or will you refuse to go into an office? It used to just be about pay, and I know that's a huge deal still and it always will be, Evan, but you get my point. There are other things that employers, I'm sure, are asking people right now. Absolutely. You know, a really interesting January effect, and I think you nailed it on the head. Uh, We saw a really serious increase, 100% increase in people looking for new experiences. Now, that number went from 8% to 16%, so it's still a relatively low number. But all of a sudden now, hey, it's the new year. I want a new experience. And it's okay to leave your job. I think what the pandemic really proved is that it's okay to to leave a job uh, earlier than two years, three years, four years, ten years. Uh, and so we don't we believe that that's never going to change. We're we're believe we're back to where it's okay to leave those jobs. And here you have people going, hey, I don't want to go back to the office, or I want a new experience. Let me go find a job. A really interesting statistic. There you go. You put it right up here now. of the recruiters of the survey, of the recruiter index survey, said that 75 to 100% of their candidates are currently employed. Uh, That's a pretty sizable number. Um, So that means that we're pulling people out of other companies in order to fill those roles. Yeah, how do we read that? 41% of recruiters, I mean, I'm reading it. I mean, not can I read it? 41%, I hope I can. 41% of recruiters say 75 to 100% of candidates are currently employed. First time this ever happened. So am I reading that as there's just nobody on the job market right now? No, that they're on the job market, but they're presently employed. That they're so they want to leave. They want to break up with their current company and start dating somebody new. That's right. So if the quit rates are down, think about the quit rates are down, and you looked at the Jolt number, they're down 20% year over year. So meaning the December quit rate 
of 23 was 20% lower than the December quit than the December quit rate of 22. So the only way to really get people uh, out of their job is to actively and proactively uh, bring them new opportunities. And that's really when you start to use a recruiter uh, to do that overall activity. Uh, so we saw uh, the number of people applying for roles increase. We saw a slight increase in the number of open roles, yet the sentiment remains the same. So people still are concerned. The recruiters still are concerned about the overall market. Yeah, Evan, we got to leave it there. Cut you a bit short because you do have some breaking news with Damon Javers. Evan, you're welcome back anytime. Love having you on. Great stats, great stuff. Thank you, Evan. All right, so here's the news. Shares for for-profit higher education ad tellum have been halted due to news pending. Eamon Javers joining us now. Eamon, uh, do we know what that pending news may be? Yeah, Brian, we do know what the news is, and I've got it in my hands here. It's a five-page press release from the company. This is the reason why the shares have been halted here uh, in the afternoon. And this is a response by Ad Tellum, the for-profit education company, to the short-seller report that you remember came out earlier this week from short-seller Fami Kadir and her firm, Safket Capital. They blasted Ad Tellum earlier this week with the report suggesting that Ad Tellum was facing future funding crunches, future difficulties in recruiting students to their for-profit uh, universities and educational programs uh, and the like. That, on Tuesday, took about a 20% haircut off of Ad Tellum shares uh, before they stabilized uh, in the after-hours trading that evening. Today, Ad Tellum is now responding with their version of events here. They are going through the Safket Capital Report uh, point by point and refuting each point in this five-page press release that they just put out. This is the reason why shares uh, were halted, and this news is now out. Uh, just to give you a sense of the uh, argument here, Ad Tellum says in this release, while presenting itself as an advocacy effort in service of student borrowers and taxpayers, in fact, the Safcat Capital Report amounts to nothing more than a thinly veiled and deceptively constructed short and distort scheme designed to extract a quick return at the expense of Ad Tellum students, faculty, employees, and shareholders. So. That is the tone of this press release, and they go through point by point uh, in responding to each of Fami Kadir's criticisms of the company. But this is not news pending in terms of, you know, there's an acquisition out there or something has happened to the CEO who's resigning or anything like that. This is news pending uh, for a press release, which is an argument, effectively, as to why that short seller report was inaccurate and why investors shouldn't trust it. I can tell you also, Brian, uh, that I talked to Fami Kadir yesterday uh, about her reaction to all of this after the market digested her short report. She told me she put on additional short sales yesterday. She was unconvinced by the company's earnings report, uh, which the company earlyed up to Tuesday. It was supposed to come out today. They earlyed it up to Tuesday in response to all of this. So some real drama here in this name, Brian, as uh, Ad Tellum is now fighting back against the short seller. Yeah, not, not a probably a household name. They own the American School of Medicine in the Caribbean, Ross University, uh, a veterinary university as well that are kind of for-profit around the country and in the Caribbean. Fascinating story. We'll see if and when Ad Tellum starts trading again. Eamon Javers, yep. thank you. you All right, coming up, is the IPO market finally about to wake up or fall back to sleep after kind of a sad sack debut for a new name today? All right, welcome back. Well, the IPO market seems to be picking up the pace this year a bit. Apparel maker Amher Sports debuting on the NYSE today with Reddit and Sheehan, two other names expected to list in the coming months. But the billion-dollar question is, are these really the IPOs that Wall Street wants? 
Deirdre Bosa digging into that for today's Tech Check. D. So, Sully, if you're like me and you love IPOs, all new listings, then sure, we're going to get some exciting names this year. But these are not like the life-changing, disruptive companies that Wall Street is so anxious for. Look at this graphic. On one side, we have the IPOs that Wall Street wants. These are those big, disruptive names, 40, 50 billion dollar plus valuations like ByteDance, SpaceX, Stripe, Databricks. They're household names or they're Silicon Valley darlings that investors you would think might be clamoring over themselves to get a piece of. On the right side of your screen, you see the IPOs that Wall Street is getting. These are the candidates for this year, the likely candidates, I should say. You've got Discord, Reddit, Skims, Plaid, Chime. Um, I'm going to put Shein in a different category in a moment, but these are likely, you know, around $10 billion valuations, solid business model, perhaps. We'll have to judge once you get those S1s, but, you know, they're not the big and exciting names. And part of that is there's this disconnect because the bigger, flashier, buzzier private companies, they can continue to tap private markets for funding. So that pushes out an IPO. They can wait. And there's also a little bit of stigma, especially here in Silicon Valley, about going public and being a slave to the quarterly report. Whereas the other companies that aren't quite so buzzy, that might gen not generate as much interest, and by the way, may not perform quite as well, um, they can't tap private markets as easily, so they need to turn to IPOs. Brian, I said that Shein is in a bit of a different category because this one, at least to me, is very, very exciting. It is sort of a disruptor. It's been making huge waves over here in the U.S., even though it's a Chinese company or Singaporean as it wants to be seen. That's up for debate. Um, but that one right now even looks to be in a little bit of peril. You had a report that existing investors were looking to sell shares in the private market because already there's being some cold water being thrown on that one. Yeah, and they're, they're, by the way, Sheehan eats my timeline on X with other ads, probably in other platforms as well, D. You know, but here's the thing. You know, you're out there in Silicon Valley, home of venture capital, right, and private equity and all this stuff. You just feel like more and more money is just being made. We talked about it on my show last night. More and more money is being made in the private markets. In other words, the real money, the big money. <laughs> they get in yeah. on the companies before they go public, and that's where, mm -hmm. that's where you get the 30,000-square-foot house in Atherton. I mean, that's always been the case, right? Venture capital works on this idea that you're going to invest in 100 companies and one of them may turn out to be your lottery ticket, right? You might have invested in the Uber um, or the Airbnb. Um, they need exits, right? And that's venture capital. Private markets typically lag the public markets. They do need exits. They need more of their companies to go public. doesn't even have to do that well because they got into them at such early stages. But there's another dynamic at play, which is new over the last 18 months or so, and that is mega cap tech money. Billions and billions of dollars, more than the venture capital world has really ever seen, save maybe SoftBank or Tiger Global, investing billions and billions of dollars into these new generative AI darlings like OpenAI. Yep. and Anthropic, but also some of the smaller ones, right? They're fetching billion-dollar valuations easily. They're unlikely to go public as well because money's flush for them. That's it. Deirdre Bosa, a, a shoe-in for Sheehan. Deirdre, thank you. <laughs> I try. Coming up, big oil, bleach, and boots. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on some of the names not in technology set to release their numbers. Stick around. All right, we talked about it at the top. Got a lot of tech names, Apple, Amazon, and more reporting after the bell today. But there's also numbers coming out of non-tech. ExxonMobil, Chevron, Clorox, 
and Skechers shoes all on deck. Joining us with his trade for today's earning exchange is Chris Grisanti, MAI Capital Management's Chief Equity Strategist. Chris, good to have you on. Let's start off with Shek, uh, I almost called it Shexon, which I just combined the two names. Maybe they should. Someday they'll merge. That's right. And it'll be known as Shexon, and it sounds like a video Dead game mobile. or something. There, yeah, it's right, perfect. Right. ExxonMobil and Chevron. Oil prices in focus. Geopolitical tensions continuing to rise as well. What are you looking for from ExxonMobil? You know, Brian, I'm positive on the oils. It's good to be with you again. You know, for these guys, CapEx is down. They have a lot of levers to pull to return capital to shareholders. And, and, and of course, the problems in the Middle East have, have put a floor under oil pricing, really, for the foreseeable future. So I'm not sure what the number is going to be, but, but I feel comfortable owning these things in front of the number. Okay, yeah. Chevron underperformed and maybe uh, turning it around. By the way, you got uh, Chevron on CNBC, I believe it is, tomorrow. Let's talk about Clorox. I mean, Clorox was all the rage during COVID, bleach and everything, right? What, what's your view now on Clorox? Who, who are they just going back to kind of being a slow growth sure. dividend company? Yeah, it's a classic value name. They've been absolutely killed with the devaluation of the peso in Argentina. So all eyes are really going to be on that Argentine problem, Brian. So I think expectations are quite low there. I think the companies are poised for a long-term recovery, not just in Argentina, but really in many locations. Mm-hmm. So, so I, uh, I I would be an investor there. I like the setup. If I'm wrong and Argentina is still a problem, I'd probably, uh, I think it'd be attractive yep. on the weakness. Very quickly, 30 seconds, Skechers. Sketchers. Great company. Stock's done quite well since late October, though, up about 35%. I wouldn't get in front of the earnings because I think there's probably a little more risk than reward in the short term. But again, if there's weakness here, I'd like to be an owner long term. Chris Grisanti, MAI Capital Management. We did a lot there in a short amount of time, and I love it. Chris, <laughs> thank you. you Brian. Yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. All right, folks, that does it for us here and me on The Exchange. But, of course, tune in tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, for Last Call. That is tonight. But Power Lunch starts on the other side of this quick break. We'll see you there. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.